1: PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
2: This is the Cork Today replay on C103. As we welcome you along to the programme we've got John Paul taking your calls at 0818103103 and talking of John Paul you're not on the phones at the moment, you're not, no so he can hear this letter. Uh, just before I came on air I opened the post and there was a lovely letter in from, I won't give out her full name in case she doesn't want to mention it on air but it's Kate writing to me from Glanmire and I just love the idea that somebody took the time to put pen to paper put a stamp on an envelope and pop it in the post to make sure that we would receive it and Kate says Dear Patricia what a gentleman you have with you in the station that John Paul McNamara any time I ring him he is so obliging God bless him we could all do with a lot more people like him I listen to your show five mornings a week sincerely yours Kate in Glamire. isn't that lovely? and you don't know who Kate is no you don't know uh, I thought so that was such a sweet nice thing to do thank you for that uh, Kate and I'm only too glad to mention it and you're right if we had a lot more if we could clone John Paul we'd be doing well if we could have a lot more of him in the building and uh, and I'm also glad to read it out because I'm constantly hearing from John Paul the abuse that he gets uh, sometimes sometimes on the phone uh, people just decide that they can have a go for the sake of having a go shame on the people that do that because he is probably Probably the hardest working person that we have in the radio station. So thank you, Kate in Glenmire for taking time to uh, write to us. And John Paul is answering your calls today at 0818 103 103. and please just be nice to him. You can text or WhatsApp the programme at 0862 103 103. and texts already coming in including one from Sean that said Tommy Fleming will have to change the song Hard Times Come Again No More. Uh, could he rewrite that song and Make it hard times are here now from Sean. And I think, Sean, a lot of people will agree with your sentiment uh, this morning. And while the world is anxiously waiting and watching to see what Putin and what Russia will do next in the Ukraine, we here in Ireland can do nothing else but. Sit and watch. And also, we're starting to feel the effects with the news in a lot of the papers this morning that we, as motorists here in Ireland, will be facing fuel price increases. And this is due to the sanctions now that were introduced yesterday, placed on Russia over their military incursions in the Ukraine. There was a week of tension, there was a week of diplomatic uh, talks and then the Russian President Vladimir Putin uh, moved to recognise the separate held enclaves in the Ukraine of Donetsk and Luhansk. Now they're in eastern Ukraine and of course he sent military forces in to secure the area and I kind of smirked to myself when he sent in peacekeeping forces into both of those areas and of course as soon as he did that. The sanctions started including sanctions from the European uh, Union. They placed sanctions on Russia's central bank and on members of the country's state Duma and there is an expectation of additional penalties if Moscow takes further military action in the Ukraine, the escalating crisis and the potential for further retaliatory retaliatory sanctions placed on Russia. And of course, the problem is Russia is a big oil and natural gas supplier to us here in uh, Europe. And if further sanctions, which is what is expected, is going to happen, then what will that do? It'll just push up the price of fuel and uh, gas And in the papers today, a lot of people involved in the oil business are speaking, including the chief executive of Maxall. He said that the demand for fuel is already growing at a time of restrictions on supply. And of course, there's restrictions on supply and that's been happening because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And yesterday, the price of crude oil approached the hundred dollar a barrel, and that's the benchmark considered a sign of escalating prices within the industry. Advancing prices then are reflecting concerns around this deepening crisis within the Ukraine, and they're likely then to exert further price pressure. And that price pressure goes on the service station. Once it goes on the service station, the knock on is to us, the uh, motorists. Naxal are saying at this stage that all they can say is it looks like there will be further pressure on prices and that certainly isn't good news for anyone. The pressure on price comes at a time when inflation is already running very high in this uh, country. Uh, He says that motorists are less likely to completely fill up their uh, tanks at the moment due to the high prices. They're also starting to see at the forecourts that that some customers are buying less and they're probably making less journeys. And that's fine when I see somebody and hear that oh, you know, we're seeing the motorists are making less journeys. You can make less journeys if it's just for recreational use. If you were planning on going on a Sunday drive and you're thinking, no, trying to keep an eye on my fuel and my diesel and my petrol, I'll knock the Sunday drive off. But if you're living in an area where you have to travel to go to work every day, you have to travel to get the bring the children into school. You have to travel to go to the local shops, to the post office, just to do your general day-to-day business. If you're in a rural area you've got no choice but you have to turn the key in the ignition in the car and you have to drive so you're going to have to go to the forecourt more often uh, to fill up and it's people like that who cars are a necessity rather than a luxury are the ones that are really going to feel the pinch here. Now it's impossible to tell how much the increase might be until eventually unfold and remember there's always this 10 day lag in crude oil prices when you hear the price for barrel say going to the $100 a mark. There's a 10 day lag between that and and then the price that you'll actually see at the pumps. Now, Fuels for Ireland, their chief executive, uh, Kevin McPartland, who we've spoken with before on this programme, he says motorists would likely be facing increases in the coming weeks because about 10% of the world's oil comes from Russia as well as a significant amount of natural gas, a drop in supply and a growth in demand. What does that add up to? That means it just simply drives up the prices. The potential development will come at a time when prices are already at record highs in this country and that, of course, is due to the supply problems. And then I was reading in the Irish Times this morning, Paul Denine, who is a research fellow in energy at UCC. He said, while the expectation would be home heating and electricity bills would soften coming out of the winter, prices will now likely remain high and that's because of the crisis in the Ukraine. I mean, that sort of happens every year during the winter months because of supply and demand and more people looking for oil and gas in the winter months Prices always go up, but then they level out as we head into the spring and into the summertime. They always level out. It is not because of now what's happening in the Ukraine. It's not looking like that's going to happen uh, this year. And, you know, while all of that is going on, we think of the people of Ukraine and what they must be going through and their anxiety and their worry at the moment. When I mentioned the situation in the Ukraine, Mary in Domamwe said people will often blame wars on religion. And God knows, we know there have been wars over the years because of uh, religion. But she said if you look back in history, the majority of the world wars, uh, it always comes down to human greed and power. All the world leaders need to come together and act as it's easy to see. It won't be their sons and daughters who will be on the ground uh, working and acting as the soldiers. Yeah, you're a wise uh, woman Mary and hopefully uh, you know the talks uh, will keep going and they'll do everything from a diplomacy uh, point of view Rather than going in there with all guns uh, blazing, and I know Vladimir Putin, but how often have we heard him say this? That he says Moscow are ready to look for diplomatic uh, solutions amid the tensions uh, with the West uh, over the uh, Ukraine, but stressed that the country's interests were non-negotiable. And you know, to hear him say that in you know, in one breath to say we want diplomatic solutions, but then in the next breath to say, "Well, if you're coming to offer any kind of diplomatic solutions, our country's interests are non-negotiable." That straightaway is going to get the back up from the uh, west. Thank you for your call at Mary to 0818 103 103. Okay, we're going to take a break and we are back with what the government announced yesterday, and it is the winding up of the final restrictions to do with COVID.
0: Court today on C103
3: with Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale,
2: now part of McCarthy Insurance Group, From
3: motor, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance, cmig.ie.
2: Yesterday, the cabinet agreed to end the legal requirements to wear a mask. From next Monday, they'll be optional on public transport and in shops and schools. PCR testing is also set to be scaled down with the health minister, Stephen Donnelly, saying they'll keep monitoring any new variants that emerge. Adam Higgins is political correspondent with the Irish Sun and joins me to discuss what was announced yesterday. Good morning to you, Adam.
4: Good morning, Patricia. Yeah, a couple of big moves yeah. on the COVID front yesterday.
2: Yeah, and the ending of masks will be welcomed by many, but do the government accept there will be a level of nervousness by many others?
4: They do indeed. And I think that was a question that was put to the Tanish to Leo Wrecker when he was announcing these um, moves yesterday, that there's a number of groups, for example, trade unions who represent workers in retail and public transport. There's Number of groups who represent people who have uh, underlying conditions who've all raised concerns and wanted to keep these mask mandates in place for the short term. The government recognises that, but they're keen to point out that, look, they're following public health advice here. It's an effort. It's the CMO who's advising that these can no longer be, you know, legally required. Now, they do say that they advise people to keep wearing masks in public transport, keep wearing them on retail and in areas like that. But at the end of the day, they're putting this up to the public, and what you want to do is what you'll be able to do from now on.
2: And will all the restrictions be lifted in schools, not just the need to wear masks, The things like the pods and that, are they all gone?
4: Yes, you're right. I know a lot of teachers would be uh, delighted to hear that. The likes of pods and the social distancing and all those sort of measures in school, really schools from next Monday will return to normal.
2: Not all the teachers unions are happy with that, though.
4: That's true, yeah. But I think when you when you see a lot of vox pops on the TV and the radio, when they talk to kids, they want to get back to that group learning. They want to move back towards that, and I think this is probably the time to do it because we don't know when another variant is going to come or what's going to happen, or when we might have to start reintroducing measures and that sort of thing. So, I think the government really wants to get everything gone at the moment so that we can have this period of you know COVID free.
2: Yeah and of course children are on midterm this week so it's when they go back on Monday the masks uh, will be gone Now I mentioned the introduction that the PCR testing is to be scaled down Do we know who will be entitled to a PCR test?
4: Yes Testing wise this is a really big change and that PCR testing system is going to be scaled back quite significantly over the next couple of weeks so from I think the end of the month we'll start to see the situation will be that only um, people over the age of 55 who haven't been boosted and who are, may have an underlying condition or, live, or people who live with people with underlying conditions will be uh, able to get that free PCR test. So that means that people under the age of 55 who are in good health will no longer need a PCR. And people over the age of 55 who have been boosted and are in good health will no longer need a PCR test as well. So they'll be relying solely on the antigen test to tell them whether they have the virus or not. And then
2: it will be up to people to purchase their own antigen tests. There's, there's no talk yes. of free antigen tests.
4: No, not at this moment. And we know that that became a really uh, tricky subject uh, in the run-up to Christmas when the government did plan and there was plans in place to subsidise these antigen tests. And what we understand is that they were just brought out in pharmacies for as little as €2 a test. And then when the likes of Lidl and Aldi and other supermarkets started to come in with uh, their own tests for €2, euro, the government decided to abandon that and, and let the market uh, dictate the price.
2: And if you test positive, you'll still need to isolate?
4: Yes, that that rule stays the same, as does the rule of if you are feeling symptoms, you should stay home from school or stay home from work and that sort of thing. But there is big changes when it comes to close contacts. So close contacts will no longer be required to isolate or restrict their movements, with the exception of people who um, have I'd obviously tested positive on the, on the antigen test or who have symptoms.
2: Yeah, and that's different too. I know what they're doing across the water in in England under their Living With Covid plan. uh, People who test positive will no longer have to self-isolate.
4: And there is differences when you look across and there has been throughout the the pandemic, there has been. And one other exception to that close contact rule is healthcare workers. And healthcare workers, if they are a close contact, regardless of whether they have symptoms, would be asked to use an antigen test every day just to keep screening and to make sure they're not bringing that into uh, a place where there could be vulnerable people.
2: That's understandable. And did I see healthcare workers, they will still wear masks?
4: Yes. So the only place remaining... uh, with it's, it's, a, and I have to say, it's only advisory as well for healthcare in healthcare settings, and in public, um, on public transport, it's advised that they should continue that. But the, the legal requirement for these masks is gone, so there's no fines going to be handed out and that sort of thing. And one other area that the the cabinet did sign off on yesterday was that advice from Nefit that there should be no introduction of a vaccine mandate in Ireland. Now that's something that came up a couple of weeks ago that NEFIT were considering this, but the advice from the public health experts is that no, we shouldn't have any uh, vaccine vaccine mandates, and that includes for healthcare workers, so healthcare workers shouldn't be forced to get this vaccine.
2: All right, but vaccine will still be available for people who need and require it?
4: Yes, of course, yeah. and that that the next step in this now will be uh, the Cabinet Subcommittee on COVID-19 will meet again at the end of this month to draw out a plan for the next 12 months of how we'll deal with COVID-19, and I imagine what you're going to see in there is kind of a protracted COVID-19 vaccine programme that will continue over the next 12 months while we still obviously deal with this uh, virus with thousands of cases every day.
2: Someone says, could you ask Adam, will contact tracing also end?
4: Contact tracing will be scaled back significantly. So, for example, with no close contact rules, that won't be needed anymore. But in situations where there's an outbreak in that could, you know, potentially be in a vulnerable place, the likes of nursing homes and things like that, that's where contact tracing will be focused from now on. And it has been for the past while now, I believe. A lot of your listeners may be listening and saying, I, I tested positive, registered me antigen test or tested positive with PCR and I never got a call from the contact mm. tracing service because they have been focusing on these vulnerable outbreaks. So places like nursing homes, healthcare settings, uh, outbreaks among older people, that's where they've been focusing that resource for, for obvious reasons.
2: Someone asks, does it also mean we won't have to wear masks when going to a hairdresser? Will that be gone?
4: That will be gone indeed, yes. So that we know, now it is up to individual businesses can, of course, put in their own rules that their customers have to wear uh, masks. And I think that's kind of going to be uh, an issue now that you see over the next while is what businesses introduce this if they want to. So, like, obviously a business can refuse service to whoever they want if they don't have a mask on, but there will be no legal requirements now for a mask. So that's going to be a tricky situation now that I think some businesses are being left to deal with. Yeah,
2: yeah. And have we seen the end of Netflix, Adam?
4: Yes, Neffet in its current form is gone. So Neffet was uh, an advisory body of dozens of Ireland's best scientists, and they advised and served the, the government very well over the past two years, but in its current form, it's gone. It'll be scaled back to a group of about eight people who will include them, um, you know, top virologists and public health doctors. They will continue to advise the government on a rolling basis, but it won't be the situation that we saw over the past few years where, you know, everybody's waiting for this big advice from Neffet and that sort of thing. That situation is gone now. They're very much moving into the background in a smaller capacity.
2: Yeah, and at their last meeting last week, they they never made a date for the next meeting, which was telling in itself. They knew themselves that that was really officially their last meeting.
4: They did, and and at the end of that meeting, we were told that uh, Dr. Hillman thanked all of the the scientists and the the doctors involved in effort and for their what they've done over the past two years, which is very clear indication that he doesn't think he's going to be in that position again of of dictating that big of a, a team.
2: But if a new variant emerges, could we be back to square one?
4: Well, that's the big question. And I think it's one that nobody really wants to know the answer to just yet because we're just getting out of these restrictions. And when it comes to another variant, the government has always said, look, we, they reserve the, the need for these restrictions to come back. They, they've never said never when it comes to pandemic. They've never said mass are gone forever. They've never said uh, lockdowns even are gone forever, you know. So those sort of measures can still be used in the future, but um, here's hoping that there's no need to.
2: Yeah, we're just all hoping that this is the beginning of the end. Uh, listen, Adam, appreciate you talking to us today. Thank you for that. Thanks, Bridget. Good morning to you. That is Adam Higgins, who is the political correspondent uh, with The Irish uh, Sun. And actually with the with the masks being removed not everyone is that happy with it. You will have lots of people who can't wait for Monday morning to ditch the mask and never want to wear it again and then you'll have other people who certainly there will be a, a nervousness about it. But I know I was looking at some uh, groups who are representing particularly vulnerable people, like groups like the Cystic Fibrosis Ireland, COPD Ireland, the Irish Heart Foundation and the Irish Cancer Society. They're all expressing very serious worries about the great greater dangers that vulnerable people will now face from next Monday with masks being uh, lifted. Some senior specialists who are treating people uh, with weakened immune systems, they're saying that they're lifting the mask mand- mandate they would have preferred if it was delayed until at least the summertime. And then I mentioned to the teachers union when I was speaking with uh, Adam there, and many of them are unhappy with the decision to scrap mandatory mask wearing. Now some individual teachers will love the idea of being back in an. Normal classroom environment, but not everybody's happy with it. The Irish National Teachers Organisation, I saw, th- I saw them earlier say that they are extremely concerned, and again, they are particularly focusing on people who have an underlying health condition. Either the children are some of the teachers; they're also concerned, for example, about pregnant teachers in the classroom who will now be expected to work in what are already overcrowded settings. Some of our classrooms are very, very uh, large, I and mean, when we we t- and they are at the End of the day, also, the primary school teachers are teaching the largest cohort of unvaccinated people in the uh, country. The General Secretary of the INTO, John Boyle, said that they're now imploring occupational health and public health to closely monitor the situation on the ground to ensure that, that there's adequate risk assessments put in uh, place and, where necessary, that they can rem- recommend remote learning for those, particularly those teachers who are assessed as being at the highest risk. And you've got to remember, when it comes to children, since Christmas, a hundred thousand children of school-going age have tested positive for uh, COVID for the majority of them it was only like a mild uh, flu and most of them bounced back and they were fine but there was an average 75 children under the age of 14 hospitalized every single week since christmas so there's a cohort of children who are extremely at risk if they pick up covid-19 and then looking at the secondary school teachers the tui have expressed concern for students and teachers and lecturers who are medically vulnerable again are they also talking about children who will go to school and teenagers who will go to school who might have a vulnerable family member at home and are terrified of bringing COVID back home uh, with them. creche owners, they're fearing of more uh, disruption uh, with COVID outbreaks, particularly with the pod system being abolished. They were saying that the pod system has worked because it's reduced the spread of the virus to the children into their own separate little pods. It hasn't spread from one uh, to the other. Childhood Services Ireland said they're very nervous and they have a nervous tension among workers and parents about the abolition of uh, the pods. And there's also a point which I hadn't thought about to do with creches. Workers, since we introduced the pods and the COVID restrictions, workers were put, many of them were put on fixed term contracts and these were additional workers that were needed in order to run the pods they will no longer have work. Now, the flip side of that is there is staff shortages when it comes to creches and uh, child so there will be plenty of opportunities for those seeking permanent uh, jobs. So, not everyone absolutely singing from the rooftops, thrilled that masks are gone from next Monday. Your thoughts are welcome to 0818 103 103. You can text or WhatsApp to 0862. 103.103. 103.
0: Court today on C103.
3: With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. C-M-I-G I-E.
2: According to the Environmental Protection Agency's annual report on private drinking water, it shows that thousands of people have been drinking water from rural supplies contaminated with E. coli. Joining me from the EPA is Emer Cooney. Good morning to you, Emer. Morning. And you're, you're welcome to the programme. Do we know roughly how many people get their water from a private supply in this country?
5: So about 20% of the population gets um, water um, from a private supply. So what we're talking about here is anyone who gets their water from a supply that isn't provided by Irish water, you know, from the public main. And what we're focusing on specifically in this report is private group schemes, which is where um, a community group Um, sets itself up as a a group scheme. They get water from a local source, such as a spring, and they manage the treatment and distribution of the water to the scheme members. And the other type of supply we're talking about today is small private supplies, which is where a business or commercial activity or public activity um, gets their water as well from maybe a well or a spring. And um, examples of those would include rural creches, um, primary schools, nursing homes, hotels, businesses, all that sort of thing. So, um, and I suppose what we are concerned about is just that we found that in 2020, about one in 20 of those supplies were contaminated with E. coli. And we just want to raise awareness around that today. Um, and, you know, I suppose the main message really is anyone who's on those supplies or own that owns or manages such a supply really needs to be aware of their responsibilities in terms of protecting the supply and making sure the water is safe to drink.
2: And are they independently monitored and tested?
5: Yes, so the local authorities are the regulators for these sorts of supplies. Um, And the first thing is anyone who owns or manages such a supply should make sure that they are on the local authority register. Once they're on the register there, the local authority will produce an annual sampling and monitoring programme and they'll make sure to get out, take samples and analyse them and then make sure they're they're. Clean, obviously, but if there's any issues with the supply, then the local authorities will get in contact with the supply owner and to make sure to follow up with them to make sure that actions are taken to, to make sure the water is clean again.
2: And if you've a private well in your own house, should you be getting it tested once a year?
5: So, so this is um, it's slightly different in the sense that private wells, um, you know, you don't need to register them and they're not actually covered by the drinking water regulations. But we would definitely advise that anyone who has a well in their own home that's providing their own water, that you would get your water tested at least once a year. Um, And again, just to make sure that it's safe for your family Mm. or your um, neighbours or visitors to to drink as well. Um, And a really good time to do that is after heavy rain, because if your well isn't properly constructed, um, or is under, in danger of being contaminated? You will find out after heavy rain because we've seen the last few days now with the rain teeming down. It'll it'll wash any contamination off the ground into a well that's not constructed or protected properly, um, and that's when you're going to see um, contamination taking um, taking place. So there's a website inab inib.ie which lists um, labs that will do water sampling, and it's a good idea to as you yourself just at least once a year, Test it, um, yeah. organise to get a sample take, just give yourself confidence that you're to drink. That will highlight issues and we have a lot of information on our website epa.ie for anyone who is concerned about their well um, and there's an app there you can run through some questions um, and see can you be confident that your water is
2: okay. Because uh, particularly with the E. coli, would you notice drinking it if there was E. coli in it?
5: No, um, well, I mean, there'd be nothing to indicate if it's just E. coli, there'd be, you know, if you pour a glass of water from your tap, there's not going to be anything to indicate that E. coli is there. Um, so, and what what can happen is people who, um, people can get used to drinking their own water. Um, yeah. You, know, if you if you have a well, maybe there is some contamination, but, uh, you know, the people living in the house Don't notice that water for it. Years. They may not notice it at all and then you get somebody who comes to visit and maybe they'll get sick. So the problem is you'll only unless you test you'll only really you, know yeah, if somebody gets anywhere. sick. And and I suppose there's a bit of a danger that sometimes if people get kind of gastrointestinal illness or, you know, um vomiting bugs or diarrhea or whatever, they're they're inclined to blame food maybe mm. or that there might be something going around. And people don't all often think that maybe it's the water.
2: Yeah, well, the um, famous like one you see you'd, something
5: wrong with it visually.
2: Yeah, the famous one you'd hear from people: "Oh, there must be a gastro bug going around, and everyone in the household got it, and nobody would really stop and think. Wonder could it be something in the water that we're drinking?
5: No, and, and that's a risk. Like it's a risk both um, at home, you know, with with private household wells, but it's also a risk for business. Um, you know, who are have their own well, or their own supply, and they're providing that water as part of their business to their customers, to their staff, or to service users, um, pupils, if it's, uh, you know, primary school maybe. Um, and so there is a legal responsibility on anyone who does supply water. And I suppose we'd be trying to raise awareness around that as well, that um, if you are running a business or a public activity down the country, and we're talking about, you know, golf clubs, caravan parks, um, I mean, we're we're looking at about 400 of these sorts of supplies in Cork alone. Mm. Um, and so it's very important that the owners or managers of those businesses are aware that they have legal obligations under the drink water regulations to make sure that their water is safe to drink. And I wouldn't believe, you know, to, can't leave it up to the local authorities either, you know, to to look after this, the owner or manager themselves.
2: Has responsibility, yeah. And I was surprised to you, you say there's 20% of the the population. That's a lot of people are getting their water through some kind of a private supply.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose that's why we, you know, we produce this report every year and we like to come and talk to, to people like yourselves on the radio and just sort of raise that awareness because I think, when we turn on it, water comes out, sometimes we don 't think about where it 's coming from and um you know obviously, a lot of people have have um drilled their own wells and have taken great care about doing it and making sure everything is okay. but sometimes it can be sl- slightly out of your control as well, and that you might be downstream of um or down you know there, one of your neighbors might have a septic tank kind of you know not that far away that might 't be um working properly. Or you could have land spreading going on in your area, um, so there's a lot of factors that need to be taken into consideration.
2: And in outside of E. coli, was did the testing show up anything else?
5: So the other um, thing we're focusing on this year is trihalomethanes, and they can be formed when um, if you're disinfecting water using chlorine. Um, so they're a byproduct of the disinfection process, but we see them predominantly in areas where the water, the raw water, being used. Is from a river or a lake, um, what we'd refer to as surface water. So that tends to be more of a problem up the northwest of the country, where a lot of their water comes from rivers and lakes. Whereas in other parts of the country, we see it's more likely to be groundwater. You know um, that people are using in private supplies. So again, from wells. And if you're using groundwater, there's a uh, kind of a, an extra level of protection in that the water is underground. It's you know there's layers of rock and soil above it that. Pre- protect it give it extra protection from being contaminated whereas if you're taking water from a river or a lake again when you have very heavy rain stuff is washing into into the river or the lake or you could have animals able to get down a riverbank and access the water so there's extra risks there and on those supplies, you do tend to need to be more careful about what sort of treatment you might need.
2: OK, all right. And, you know, these are private wells for people living in rural areas that don't have any other choice. It's their only way of accessing water. Are there any government funding or supports available for private water supplies?
5: So for private group schemes, um, there is a fund, the Multi-Annual Rural Water Programme, that which is... Um, set up by the Department of Housing and it's administered by the local authorities. So private group schemes can apply for funding through their local authorities and the local authority will assist assist them with that. So that's if they need to do some sort of upgrade work. So certainly in in an area where a private group scheme could be getting the water from um, a river or a lake, they will need, or more likely will need, additional treatment and they should get funding for that. Or in a lot of these cases, these group schemes were set up decades ago. Um, and again, it's fantastic work that was done by local communities to set them up. Um, but whatever infrastructure is there might need to be upgraded now to to make sure that the water source is protected and that the water is treated. So certainly anyone involved in the group scheme who hasn't already done so should look at accessing funding. Um, so contact the local authority to do that. Um, so that that's really the main area where funding is available. But the Department of Housing is taking kind of a... Um, doing a review at the moment of rural water in general and mm-hmm. um, so we need to watch this space and kind of see what sports might be available
2: yeah, and it's to keep everybody safe. That's what it's all about. Listen, Emer, pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for that. And thanks for joining us on the programme. Good morning to you. That is uh, Emer Cooney, who is with the Environmental Protection Agent. And remember, it is an Ed Sheeran track that you are looking out for as song four as part of the C103's 4Play for, for 4K. It is your chance to win €4,000. We've picked three songs. We will play the three songs at some stage back to... Back and in the correct order, Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer, Adele's Easy on Me, Whitney Houston, I Want to Dance with Somebody, and the final song in the C103's 4Play for 4K is an Ed Sheeran song. It isn't that one Shiver that I just played. It's that great uh, track called Bad Habits. And when we play those four songs in that row, you need to hit the phone lines as soon as you hear the, the Ed Sheeran song and get dialing because it's the 103rd caller. 103 will win the €4,000. Make sure you've got the number already in your phone. It's our new number 0818 103 103. That's the C103 4Play for 4K with McCroom Motors, where your journey to electric begins with a full range of Toyota self-charging hybrid vehicles. And if you want to find out more, you can check out their website. Go to MacroomMotors.com and stay listening for the C103's 4Play for 4K only on C103. We're getting very excited because we want to give that money away. Okay, I need to take a break. We have news at 11 on the way. We'll take a look at some of your calls and comments coming in and also hearing as to why the Children's Rights Alliance feel that the government appear to have given up when it comes to housing families.
0: Court Today on C103 with Sean Cusack
3: Insurances Can Sale. now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who
2: to talk to. See M-I-G
3: You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed.
2: Jim is listening to my interview with Imer Cooney, from the uh, EPA warning about thousands of people have been drinking water from rural supplies that are contaminated with E. coli and that's according to the latest inspection results. There could be more E. coli there. It's just people aren't testing. Jim wants to know why are the county councils not highlighting that farmers ought to keep back at least 25 metres from a well when spreading slurry on their land says Jim and I don't know how much of that spreading of slurry is to do with E. coli. It certainly wasn't mentioned. mentioned in my chat with the EPA. But I'm assuming if farmers are spreading slurry, they're spreading slurry in a lot of cases on their own land. So they will want to make sure that they're keeping it away from their own water supply. So I suppose the majority of farmers are doing the correct thing. Thanks for your text, Jim. Can I just stay with the environment? Because somebody says, Patricia, hi, we're losing all our small birds to hawks. There are no rabbits left because of these hawks. The hawks, I feel, must be culled before it's too late. I used to have anything up to 50 birds coming to my bird feeders. And now I'm lucky if I've 10 to 15. It makes me so sad. Thanking you. Have others noticed that, that there are less birds coming into their garden? And this listener is blaming hawks have we too many hawks? I wasn't aware of that. If anybody else agrees or disagrees uh, let us know. And then Pat in Kilmallock says after the recent storms and we had the three storms back to back, we'd storm Dudley then we'd storm Eunice and then I think the storm Franklin was the one that caught a lot of people by surprise because that seemed to have been a more vicious storm than many people had anticipated. Pat says because of all of those storms last week, will we ever learn the lesson about trees? The damage that a tree can do if it comes down in a storm is unreal and God rest that poor council worker in Wexford why are the council not cutting down all dangerous trees well I think the council are the council are doing the best they can when it comes to dangerous trees but isn't it up to landowners as well following storms I know Peter Dowdall who will be joining us a little bit later on on the Our Gardening Expert he always talks about that that particularly after very stormy conditions bearing in mind three back to back that landowners and people with gardens that have a lot of old trees you need to check and see have they been damaged because there will have been a lot of trees That would have gotten in some way, maybe didn't come down in the three storms, but they're damaged to such an extent that the next big storm will bring them down. And that's what I think people need to take a look out uh, for. Thanks for your text, uh, Pat, in Kilmallock. And actually, just when Pat mentions that county council worker who was killed, that was during Storm Eunice, wasn't it? Uh, Last week, his funeral gentleman's name was Billy Kinsler, and he was killed when a fallen tree Close to his own home in North Wexford, fell down. He was. They were clearing the debris from the road. He was with another work uh, colleague when he was struck by a tree during uh, high winds. And his funeral, actually, his mass and burial is taking place this afternoon so we think of poor Billy Kinsler, and in particular think of his family today may he rest in peace now a number of people on about the masks and the lifting of the majority of all the restrictions now will really be gone for Monday we'll kind of be back to where we were before we ever even heard of COVID in this country now nearly two years ago. Somebody says Patricia I'm telling you now I'll be wearing my mask for another uh, while while I might look out of place I don't really care I don't think you're going to look out of place because I think a lot of people are still going to be wearing masks and this listener has said are they also gone on planes they're not and I know somebody else is asking the same question what about no vaccine rule for travelling by plane has that been removed but remember what you have to when you when when you're travelling anywhere, you have to check in with the country that you're travelling to because every single country has a different rule and regulation. I know across Europe they're recognising the COVID vaccine uh, passes. It's what's recognised for the majority of countries. But for, for other countries, and it depends on where you're travelling, you don't always have to have a vaccine if you're one of the people who didn't go down the route of getting uh, vaccinated, even on this country. What do we have 95% of over-18s did take up a vaccine, but obviously there's 5% that didn't. And there's also families with children who opted not to vaccinate their children. A a negative PCR test will allow you to travel as well. So it isn't for some countries, for countries like Australia, which opened up this week to tourists and opened their borders for the first time in two years, It absolutely is necessary. You have to be double vaccinated to get into Australia. But it does vary from country to country. So if you are planning on travelling by plane, you just need to check in. But certainly as of now, wearing masks on a plane is compulsory. Don't know if wearing masks at the airport. If you're walking around the airport, I'll need to check into that. But certainly on planes, you're going to have to wear a uh, mask. And then a listener was listening to me calling out the different organisations like Cystic Fibrosis, the Irish Cancer Society, COPD Ireland, the Irish Heart Foundation, organisations like that who represent very vulnerable people and people who are medically very vulnerable. They were expressing very serious concerns about the dangers with people not wearing masks, and I mentioned the teachers' unions, not all the teachers' unions are happy about it because they're concerned about their vulnerable staff members and people who are pregnant, for example, teachers who are pregnant. Somebody says, well, but can't those people continue to wear masks if they want? And of course, they will continue to wear masks, masks. But from the teachers' unions' point of view, they're making the point that even if the teacher decides to continue to wear the mask, they're still going to be in a classroom with a lot of unvaccinated children, which will put them at higher risk if the children are not wearing the masks, I think that's where their concerns uh, come into it. Uh, Morris in Glanton says, "Let us not." While everyone is hoping that this is the end of the pandemic, and while it is still. The World Health Organisation are still calling it a pandemic. It hasn't gone to an endemic uh, yet. But so very much COVID-19 is still very much with us. And now we're learning to live with it. I mean, I think that's what the government is talking about with all the changes from next Monday. Maris said, let's all stop and reflect and remember that there are many families out there who are really, really grieving and who lost a loved one in the last two years because of covid they're still dying, Morris said. We still have people dying in this country. There's about 17 or 18 people on average a week dying from uh, COVID. But it's almost like, says Morris, we've come immune to hearing about deaths from uh, COVID. And yet there are so many families in pain. Also, he says, we've had so many flus over the last few years in this country. He feels every winter we should be wearing masks and make it mandatory. And that happens in, in other countries. I mean, certainly in Asian countries, they all wear masks and they wear masks to protect other people if they've got any kind of a cough or a sniffle and if they're in any kind of a crowded space way before Covid ever came. Uh, people were all wearing masks in other countries. Should it be something Should it be something we introduce here? According to Morris in Glen he feels we should be. Mary is in Rathcool. She said, I'm going to be wearing my hospital graded mask as long as I'm in this world. I've got so many of my family members who are working in education so I will be continuing to wear masks and you won't be on your own Mary. There's a lot of people saying very much the same thing. And I mentioned about COVID certificates and how you will need COVID certificates for travel. Mora contacted us this morning to say she's been on to the COVID helpline and she wants to get the hard copy of her COVID certificate. She doesn't want it on her phone, on the app She wants to have the physical piece of paper in her hand. So she's been ringing the COVID helpline and explaining because that's where you go if you want to request a hard copy. And they've been very good about sending it out to people. But, says Maura, she's in a bit of a pickle. She said every time she receives the paper copy, it's for another person. She doesn't know who the person is and she doesn't know why she's getting another person's COVID certificate. She said maybe somebody in error put in the wrong air code and therefore uh, Maura's address keeps popping up on it. She cannot understand it. And every time she requests it, points out to them, you've sent me out the wrong certificate. And she said, yet again, another one arrives in a different person's name. It seems really, really bizarre. Now, we have taken Maura's details and we're getting on to the Department of Health and we'll see if we can sort out that particular dilemma that Maura finds herself in. I haven't, I've heard of people having problems getting their COVID certificate, but I haven't heard of anybody who points out that you've sent it out in the wrong name and they continue to send another one out in the wrong name. I I don't know what's going on there. Uh, Thank you for your call Maura to 0818 103 103. Now somebody earlier uh, sent in a text uh, and I read it out a couple of minutes ago about hi, we're losing all our small birds to hawks, there's no rabbits left and this person feels that hawks must be culled before it's too late and they cite the example that in their own garden they would have anything up to 50 birds coming in to the bird feeders and now at best they only have between 10 and uh, 15 birds. Uh, Willie's contacted us uh, on this in Glamire. Mor- morning to you, Willie. Good morning, Patricia. Are, are we no, losing small birds to hawks? But,
6: uh, well, I tell you, you know, I was watching the Winter Watch programme there on BBC a few weeks ago. Brilliant you know, programme. Do sprint, sprint, yeah. yeah. And research that, that has been done has proved that it's because of pesticides and insecticides that were so many small birds have been lost and they quoted the figure like in the millions of, when it came to the number of birds that were lost. And I don't know if anybody, I've, I've noticed over you know, the last few years, so few flies and wasps around now, like before you'd be pestered with them in and, and the last number of years there, I, seen, I could count in one hand how many flies came into the house. You know? Yeah, and, I, I... and no what. No west like
2: before we
6: go you know jam jars to tap the west in case they come in
2: yeah I have I, I know we have a big concern a big worry about the bee population yeah. in this oh, yeah. in this country oh, yeah.
6: Yeah, but there's the pesticides, and it's not the hedge cutting. I mean, people are going on about the hedge cutting. I've been around a long time, and hedges were always cut, and there was always plenty of birds. But in my younger days, I saw very little pesticides and insecticides. The only thing I, I ever saw was the blue stone for spraying for the, for the blight and yeah. your know, Farmers didn't, there wasn't this huge spreading of pesticides and insecticides like there is now. And that is that's the content BBC and the research.
2: That's because yes, and of, of that and that makes a lot of sense because yeah. when I was reading the text as well, for that many birds to go missing, you'd want a hell of right. a lot of hawks ah, yeah. A, yeah. A, a yeah. around. Yeah. I don't yeah. think we yeah. can be yeah. blaming yeah. the hawks. And even no, if no. it is, even if there is a percentage that are being killed off by hawks, that's kind of the balance of nature. That's the, ah, yeah. Yeah. that's yeah. that's yeah. the way it works. That's but yeah. I I think yeah, I think the BBC are probably right, and if the research backs it up, and. Oh, it yeah, if it's happening it a, in the UK it's it happening here yeah, yeah. The, bird,
6: the little birds depend on the flies and the insects to yeah. feed and and, and that their their feeding is gone so they're 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 dying off <laughs> yeah we are destroying and, and,
2: and, our planet bit yeah. by bit. We really yeah. are. And,
6: and, and I mean, this thing of not cutting hedges is a bit of a, a farce, really, because, you know, as they were always cut before and trimmed. Now, they weren't mauled with machinery like they are now. <laughs>
2: but, yeah, but know, they were always cut back.
6: Oh, yeah, well, they were trimmed back. And, and, yeah. and I suppose they were hand, done by hand mostly. But and, and those who were doing it watched out for the nests and didn't interfere with them, you know. But
2: Whereas a machine and, can't do that.
6: Well, uh, they could still trim them gently, you know, trim back the the ones, the overhang on the road and that without cutting them right back to the roots.
2: Do you think sometimes it's used as an excuse not to cut the hedges? I think so, I think so, yeah, I think so, yeah. And the damage done to cars then, I think a lot of people will agree with you. Okay, Willie, thank you for that, a man in the know. Thanks for (laughs) sharing your knowledge with us. Good day to you.
6: ABC's yeah, and that Winter Watch
2: <laughs> programme is great. Yes, yeah, yeah. All yeah. right, God bless. Take care, Thanks. Willie. Bye Thanks to me. And that's Willie in uh, Glenmire. Not blaming the hawks, blame the pesticides and the insecticides. We are all using too many of them. 0818 103 103. C103 Jobs. Murphy's Pharmacy in Bohabui. They're looking for a full time sales assistant. This is with a view to completing a pharmacy technician's course. Email murphys.pharmacy at job at pharmacyjob at gmail.com Receptionist campsite assistant wanted that's for the Mountain Forge Escape they're based in Ardfield in Clonakilty. Connor is your contact at 086 uh, you can email a CV to info at mountainscape.ie O'Neill's Garage that's in Bantry they're looking for a mechanic Mike is your contact 087 And a labourer is wanted for a block layer in the Cork City area. Uh, Email millmasonry at gmail.com. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103.
0: court today on C103.
3: With Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, cmig.ie
2: In a scathing report on family homelessness, the Children's Rights Alliance 14th Annual Report Card says the government appears to have simply given up on providing houses. Julia Hearn is Legal and Policy Manager with the Children's Rights Alliance and uh, Julie joins me. Good morning, she Julie, good morning, and you're you're welcome. Are the numbers of children experiencing homelessness in this country increasing rather than decreasing?
7: Yes, they are indeed. So, in our report card, we track the government commitments that they make for children and young people in the programme for government. And this year, in relation to homelessness, they received an E grade. And what we saw, which was very interesting in the report, was that in 2020, during the height of the pandemic, the government adopted preventative measures that stopped children and families from becoming homeless. And in fact, we found a number, sorry, a huge number in reductions of people entering homelessness. But what we've seen is that since those preventative measures and their measures, like, for example, a ban on evictions and rent freezes, were taken away, that the numbers have begun to increase. And we currently, at the end of December, had 2,451 children homeless. And when you think about that, that's enough to field over 120 kids football teams
2: that's, so that's just shocking. a
7: large number of children and it's, and it's and creeping back
2: up. And it's, you're proving that when the preventative measures, when the government decide that they want to do something about it, which they did during the pandemic, it can be done.
7: Exactly. And what we saw is that where the will was there, homelessness is not inevitable. But where the will is there, it can people can be prevented from becoming homeless. And what we're seeing now, and I think there's been a lot in the media about it recently, is that the reliance that we have on the private market here in Ireland has not worked. In November 2021, there was the lowest number of private rented properties available. And recently, there's been reports that rent was at its highest level since records began. So a lot of these families who are coming out of homelessness or who are in, in coming into homelessness are coming from the private rented market. So if if the costs are going up, the numbers of houses are going down, it's completely You know, you can draw the line between how people are becoming homeless and really the other aspect of it that is really worrying for us is that the housing assistance payments, this is the payment the government gives to people who are on lower, the
2: half. The half, yeah.
7: Yeah, that hasn't increased since 2016. And we all know rents have increased dramatically. So what we're seeing is that families are put in this position where if governments don't take short-term preventative measures, things are going to get worse. But in reality, what we need to do in the long term is we need to refocus on building houses. And building public houses.
2: Well, it's funny because we only touched on the housing crisis earlier on in the week on the programme, and one of our listeners uh, sent in a text saying that we need to go back to the 60s and 70s when local authorities were building houses. I mean, is that what is it? I mean, it almost seems a, a simple answer, but is that what we need to do? It is because currently we're focusing
7: on the private market, and that just isn't working families can't keep up with the increases that are being demanded of them in the private rented market and more and more of them if we continue this way are going to fall into homelessness and another really worrying element of it is that one in four children who are homeless in dublin were homeless for over two years oh. so getting out of homeless accommodation is incredibly difficult because of this reliance in the private market And i mean we've heard over the years of what it's like living in this homeless accommodation for children and young people families in one room no place to play, no place to eat, no place to do homework, often far away from their schools. And can you imagine if you're a child how long two years is if you're living like that?
2: And are you seeing the effects that that has on children living in emergency accommodation?
7: Yeah, I mean, we recently, well, in the last number of years, we've done a few reports on that um, around particularly the impact on their education. And we know that for children and young people, often what parents do is they try to keep them in the school that they were always in, even if that means travelling across across the county, across the city, just that they've some, some normality and some routine in their lives. And what we see is that children are tired. Often children are unable to concentrate. Uh, their emotional development and their, their development in general can be quite impacted despite all the things the parents do to try to keep things as normal as possible. But it's just such a difficult situation. I mean, if you think about it, if you and your family were living in one room and everything had to happen in that one room, there's no way you could have a normal family life, no no matter how hard you
2: tried. It's it's impossible. And, you know, I've heard, particularly the the slightly older children and the teenagers, there's a huge element of, they're they're stigmatised, they're embarrassed to say Mm. that they're living in a local hotel.
7: Yeah, and I mean, who could blame them? You know, it's hard enough being a teenager and, you know, we've seen the levels of anxiety increasing dramatically throughout the pandemic. And can you imagine putting that on top of it for people, especially during the pandemic? But I think, you know, it's clear that the will is, the will, if the will is there. It can be done. It has been done and the government themselves did it and they only did it last year. So what we need to see is government step up to the mark and be willing to take those measures that they know work and that are proven to work to ensure that children and families are not living in this type of situation.
2: Okay, and you you've got a quite a, a detailed uh, report. You also look at things like the government didn't do well on mental uh, health CAMS. Is that simply just under too much pressure?
7: Yeah, I mean within the report card we looked we looked at the system more broadly but very specifically we looked on the children in need of the most acute help. So that's children who might need to go into hospital to see to have their mental health um Help to get help with their mental health and what we saw is that last year 25 children and young people were placed in an adult unit so if you were to think about that these are the children who need to go into hospital because their mental health is so bad they being placed in an adult ward and if you're a child that is absolutely terrifying because these places aren't designed with children in mind like a children's place would be they're not in a place that has the correct staff for them, and often what we see is that even things like activities just aren't there for them. So this is unacceptable in this day and age that children and young people are being placed in adult units. But what is really concerning for us is that instead of the government trying to stop this practice like they committed to in the Program for Government, they're actually bringing in legislation that will place it on a statutory footing for the first time. So that part of it is really worrying. But then also, as you mentioned, accessing to CAM services. We know the system's at breaking point. We've heard all the reports coming from Kerry and from other areas about what is happening for children and young people on the ground. And we also know that anxiety is going through the roof. And really, the government need to step back and they need to think about how they can implement real-time solutions and listen to children, listen to families, listen to professionals and experts and implement those practical solutions that can try to help the system cope with what we know is coming down the tracks following the pandemic.
2: Yeah, yeah, we all know that there's an increase in, in mental health uh, issues. And I just think it's, it's tough enough for the child waiting to access the service. Mm-hmm. But for parents sitting at home watching yeah. their children in pain, it's yeah. just dreadful.
7: Yeah, and we hear that we have an information line in the Children's Rights Alliance where we provide free legal information and advice to children, to young people and to families. And we hear from parents about how hard it is for them to have to watch their child but then also have to fight to try and get them access to the services they need. And really what we need to be focusing on in mental health is shifting the focus to, away from crisis interventions to making sure the services are there in the ground to prevent children's mental health getting worse. So looking at what other professionals can be brought in at an earlier stage to help children and families cope so that things don't escalate to a point where they need to be in with the specialist services. So it's really about trying to turn it on its head and reimagine it so that we do meet children where they're at, we meet their needs earlier and that they aren't going through this suffering and waiting that we know is happening.
2: OK, all right. And just to finish on a positive, what areas have the government done well in in the last year with regards to children?
7: Yeah. So what we've seen is across a few areas, the government have really worked at putting the infrastructure in place to make changes. So, when it comes to uh, harassment and harmful communications, COCO's law, people might know it oh, as. Yeah. The government did bring in a law around around that, and that's very positive. So that they did what they said they would do. And um, similarly, in direct provision and undocu- for undocumented children, they have brought in place milestone pieces of um, infrastructure. So this is a commitment to end direct provision and also a scheme whereby people who are undocumented can apply to have their status regularised. Now, the impact that has yet to be seen, and we will have to monitor it closely to make sure it actually does what it says on the tin, but they have started in those areas to put in place the infrastructure and then similarly when it comes to children with special educational needs and early years they have started to increase investment and again we have to wait and see does that have the impact that it needs to have in the lives of children and young people but it's positive to see them moving in the right direction.
2: Okay, it's good to end, end on a positive. Uh, Julie, listen, thank you for that and, and well done. It's a really, really detailed report. Well done to everybody at the Children's Rights Alliance and thank, thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, good morning to you. That is uh, Julia Harn, Legal and Policy Manager with the Children's Rights uh, Alliance. And just the mind boggles that we can have nearly 2,500 children as we speak living in homelessness uh, in this country. 0818 103 103. John Paul, taking your calls and talking of calls, Nula, one of our listeners contacted us. Now it's on behalf of her brother. Her brother's partner died. It's over a year ago now but her brother is still struggling and she describes him as being extremely sad within himself. You know that awful feeling that you get when you lose a loved one, that heavy, heavy feeling of uh, bereavement and she said he feels himself that he needs a little bit of help And he is willing to open up and perhaps what what he thinks he needs and what Nuna thinks he needs is he needs a little bit of bereavement uh, counselling. But her brother doesn't like the idea of doing counselling, you know, on a one-on-one basis. He feels he would do a lot better if he could get into a group situation. So they're living in the North Cork area, but Nuna said they are willing to travel. So they they would travel outside of the area, maybe go uh, to the city or anywhere else if there was... If anybody knows of a group or if anybody can offer advice so that Nuala, being a really good sister, trying to help her brother. If anybody is aware of any group that you think her brother could benefit from joining some kind of group therapy, group counselling, but specifically for bereavement. Anybody heard of anything or know of anything that would help Nuala's brother let us know 0818 103103 103. you can text or whatsapp to 0862 103103 Cork today on
0: C103
3: with Sean Cusack Insurances Kinsale now part of McCarthy Insurance Group they don't just talk the talk they walk the walk cmig.ie
2: Now high winds brought on by storm Franklin which was our third storm in a row last week as has taken its toll on one of Cork City's best-known landmarks, and that's the cross on the roof of the Church of the Ascension in Grona For the Walsh is the parish priest there, and he joins me. Good morning to you, Fr. Uh, good morning, Patricia. And, and
8: Thanks for w- having me on.
2: Well, you're, you're very welcome. When and how did you realise you were in trouble with the cross?
8: Uh, well, and um, there was another priest here with me on Sunday and somebody knocked at the door, some per- local parishioner, and said that I know the church, the cross had tilted over. Or th- what they said was, is, was falling. So I went out um I went out to to view it, and it was tilted over, very obviously tilted over. And I watched it for some time, and there was no movement. But then a lot of the parishioners came and kind of felt that we should ring the fire brigade, so we did. And anyway, the fire brigade weren't able to go up and evaluate it because um, it was too windy for them to go up on their own uh, laddered uh, the ladders and their vehicles so uh, they they said look that the place was closed off until we got an engineer's report assessing the damage so on monday actually the engineer came up and he was up there and what he said was that it, that it, it wasn't in imminent danger it was the, it's really the casing around the cross that has dislodged okay. um the the metal the, the steel kind of spine if you like and um So, uh, anyway, he's up, but he did say that the cross was in the bad way and probably everything needs replacing. It's the first 60 years. So, uh, I suppose it is. And
2: is it the first time it ever got damaged in high winds? Uh, It
8: is, yeah, from my knowledge, yeah. And, you know, we've had some big storms, so it has withstood a good amount over the years, but... Like all of us, it gets old, and
2: <laughs> it's pushing, it's pushing on a bit. Yeah. So the, the the church grounds, I know, initially were deemed unsafe. Are, are, is the church the, back yeah. in use again now and everything?
8: The, yeah, the, the, the engineers said to just close off kind of around the belfry there, okay, and that we could use the compound. So the graves were back saying mass. Now there would be a problem for funerals and things where you'd have a big number of cars and they want the parking space. But anyway, what, what we have to do immediately is that we have to get scaffolding up there to remove the casing. Okay. And then a fuller assessment will be made and we'll see where we go from there. But I'm kind of very determined that across we will go back we will go back there and a lit up cross will go back there
2: So it needs the, the entire cross now needs to be replaced is what you're saying uh,
8: Yeah he says it's in the bad way kind of r- 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 rusted and things
2: Yeah yeah and of course when you're looking at it from a distance you don't notice any damage it's only when somebody like that an engineer gets up Yeah up close. and kind
8: of go, in to, in, go inside and it. it never occurred to myself really until he showed me pictures and it does need replacing that
2: Yeah and is there damage done inside in the Belfry, do you no, know? There no, is,
8: there isn't, no. Well,
2: that's good news, isn't yeah, it? That
8: is good news, yeah.
2: So, uh, I saw a GoFundMe page has been uh, set up by the local community.
8: That's right. The the two ladies here and the secretary said that we asked for permission, so I said, go ahead. Uh, it will cost a good bit of money, you know. Um, now, we we hope to get something from the insurance. we certainly get scaffolding costs and things I'm certain of that but uh, but they won't replace the cross itself because that would be just wear and tear it's not damaged yeah, by yeah. storm and
2: God insurance will catch you every way won't they <laughs> yeah. yeah so they, they you'd probably get covered for the cost of removing it
8: yes exactly yeah. and then
2: you're going to be left with the blank space to start again the, yes yeah, so so you have an idea for an a lit up cross, which is because the the old one, the one that's there, that isn't lit, is it? It is, yeah. Oh, is uh, it? Uh,
8: that has been lit since the sixties. But, oh, but, but it? But it it costs a lot of a lot to maintain it actually because every time uh, a light would go on it, you'd <sighs> need a hoist to go okay. up the eighty feet, and from the ground level, and that we are talking really about a thousand euro uh, to start with to get the crane. And then, whatever costs for maintenance but um so it has been lit but uh, from the beginning, and I remember as a little fellow growing up, my mother showing us the cross at night from our house in Balafihan, which is right across the city mm. uh, but um the so but for a few years it wasn't working actually they they just got too expensive to maintain and but now um. so about four years ago, there we got it going again and we got an incredible response from people uh, all over the city, Bishopstown and Blackrock and those people who were able to see the cross lit up at night. And it was just... uh, it was kind of a real kind of beacon of hope there in the dark, yeah. dreary nights of winter. So we will get a lit-up cross again. And doubt, and,
2: yeah. pr- and probably you know, with I mean, as you say, that's a sixty-year-old cross. Technology has moved on, and LED bulbs and all of that. There's probably more modern ones yeah. that would oh. will last longer.
8: Yeah, about four years ago, actually, we did put in the LEDs, oh, and you? there was less maintenance. Certainly with yeah. those. And it, it was even more luminous as well uh, than the fluorescent tubes.
2: Yeah, and wh- where do you go to buy a cross to put up on top of a church?
8: Uh, so it would have to be kind of fabricated. Really, the oh yes. uh, the, the, the a contractor will be needed to fabricate one. Yeah, and then the the, the 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 kind of the casing around it will will have to be made again. So it will cost a good bit of money, actually. But anyway, I'm determined to get it up and list again
2: and you, and you have the people so you certainly have the people of Grona uh, abroad. and I think the wider city behind you
8: we have yeah actually you know some donations have arrived here uh, some man arrived and an elderly man arrived in there this morning giving 100 euro and he's city. not from the parish at all so uh, there, uh, there's great great goodwill and Grona the people kind of we've put a lot of pressure on them in recent years to get the new roof and everything and they're just fantastic, really. They haven't thrown tomatoes at me yet, anyway. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and they would never do that, Father Tomás. Never. OK, the kindness of people is terrific. OK, yeah. and we'll share the GoFundMe page um, on our social media as well. I know it's gone to over €2,000 when I checked before I came on air this yeah. morning. And it's to try and raise about 10000 you reckon, should cover it?
8: Yeah, I'm not sure, really, but it'll certainly cost over 10000 anyway and but we we'll get some amount from the insurance so we'll see where we go from there actually
2: okay yeah. all right and you're all back to uh, everything back to back to as normal as it can be it now is, yeah, after the, part
8: co- of the compound is closed off really, for parking okay Sure. All
2: right. OK, listen, we'll, we'll keep a close eye on uh, this. And, um, uh, you know, and I, I do know, I do know the good, the good people of Cork. They're fantastic. They'll get that, they'll get that cross back up and lighting before you know it. In the meantime, thank you for taking time out to talk to us today. Good morning day. to you. Bye bye. God bless. That is Father uh, Thomas Walsh, who is the parish priest at the Church of the Ascension in Gronerborough. And you probably, people may have, may, you may have actually seen it on uh, line when they put up the pictures of it after Storm Franklin I mean it literally had uh, tilted over and there was the big fear I think early on when the storm was raging the big fear was if that comes down the damage that it could do but it didn't come down And, and I'm assuming the fact that it was the three storms back to back probably with each storm it got a little bit more damage and a little bit more damage and eventually it was Storm Franklin was the one that just pushed it over and that's the point when somebody was talking about the trees it's not necessarily one storm or... That will knock a tree down. It's a series of storms will weaken a tree, and then the tree will eventually uh, fall uh, over. So we'll share that GoFundMe page for the Church of the Ascension in Groanabrohurt. Thank you to somebody who has suggested for Nuala's brother, whose partner died about a year ago, and is still really struggling with bereavement. But it is only a year as well. But the per- Nuala's brother reckons that uh, he would go for some bereavement counselling, but he would prefer if it was in a group setting. He doesn't. Like like the idea of going for a one-on-one. He'd feel more comfortable in a group setting. Somebody has suggested that there's a bereavement group in McCroom. Now, they didn't give any other details other than there's a bereavement group in McCroom. If anybody knows of a bereavement group in McCroom, because uh, Nuala says they are in the North Cork area and are willing to uh, travel. So, if anybody has any further details about a bereavement group in McCroom, McCroom. Please uh, let us know 0818 103 103. And on the wearing of masks and the lifting of restrictions, the majority of which are going to be lifted from next Monday, uh, Michael says is the virus gone or not? Well, we're still, we have to live with COVID, I think Michael is what they're saying. Uh, But Michael's bone of contention is when are we going to be allowed to go into hospitals to visit our loved ones and to take in what they need when they need it in hospital. It's been a real, real struggle for people trying to drop off stuff to people trying to get in to visit loved ones in hospitals. I know in healthcare settings they're still going to be very much wearing masks. I did see a report out from nursing homes uh, saying that there, there's been a big push to try to lift a lot of the restrictions on nursing homes but they're all up to individuals so I suppose it depends on the hospital that your loved one is in. Michael, if they're anyway concerned about COVID either in the community or in the hospital then they will put restrictions in place we've seen that before the pandemic when there would have been the winter vomiting bug how many hospitals would cancel uh, visiting so that's going to be an individual I don't know when we're going to get back to hospital doors just being wide open and people being allowed in to visit uh, their loved ones it literally is going to be up to individual hospitals and individual uh, nursing homes thank you for your your Text or your call to 0818-103-103. Going to take a break. Uh, we've got news at 12. And reminder that Peter Dowdell answers your gardening questions in the next hour.
0: Cork Today on C103.
3: With John Cusack Insurances Can Sale. Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG.ie. You're listening to Cork Today on replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed.
2: One of our listeners is a 70-year-old looking to get a passport. I'm assuming from this text you're looking to get a passport for the same time, for the, for the first time. I live on the Kerry border. Do I have to go to Cork City and what's the price of a passport? No, oh, You certainly don't have to go to uh, Cork City. You don't have to travel at all. Like, okay, what they always say about anything like that when you're applying for a passport, the easiest and quickest way is to do it online. But I assume from your text, if you're texting me, you don't have access online because if you Access online, you could have googled it and you could have found out how easy it is to do online, but it isn't easy to do it online if you don't have access to a computer. I, you're not very tech savvy. So, the easiest way for you, if you are applying for your passport, that I assume from the trust of your text for the first time is to get the forms. You can either get the forms at your local Garda station, you can get the forms at your local post office, whichever is most convenient for you. Fill in the forms, photograph, all of that. And then probably the easiest way for you if, is to do it by Passport Express, which is a service which is provided by OnPost. So you'll be bringing back your completed form with your photographs and all of that. And you'll be bringing it back to the post office. If you go with Passport Express, it will cost you 80 euro and there's a handling fee of 9.50 which I didn't realise so nearly 90 euro if you're doing Passport Express whereas if you're doing Passport Online it's uh, slightly cheaper it's 75 euro because you're doing most of the work yourself. Okay so, so go to either your guard the station to get the forms or go to the post office and then go back to the post office with Passport Express and if you are heading away on your travels we hope that you really enjoy yourself. We were talking about the EPA are we talking with the EPA earlier about the number of private water services private water schemes? that are being tested and they're discovering this is E. coli and some people were, were making the point uh, is it to do with farmers spreading slurry and like it was Jim was the first to say it that uh, farmers need to keep at least 25 metres away from a well when spreading slurry and Jim was saying the county council needs to enforce that uh, and then I said that surely farmers are because they certainly don't want to be spreading it near, near any of their own wells and you would like to think they don't want to spread it near any of their wayb- neighbours' wells well, Dennis said the farmer next door to me quite frequently spreads slurry and fertiliser and it is within my 25 metre exclusion uh, zone and I have reported it but Dennis reckons nothing has been done about it which is shocking to hear and that could be one of the reasons I don't know if you've had your water tested but the EPA are saying if you're, in, if you're in a group scheme and the local authority are on top of it they'll do the testing if it's registered with them but if it's if it's just a house on their own you need to be getting it tested To make sure that nobody in the household is becoming sick because of the water coming out of your tap. Now we were talking about bereavement counselling earlier because Nuala contacted us. She's looking for suggestions for her brother who is a year after the loss of his partner and is still struggling and is looking for some kind of group bereavement counselling and we're still looking for suggestions to pass on to Nuala's brother but that has prompted somebody to say listening to you talking about that gentleman and his bereavement counsel, I know everybody grieves differently says this texter but all counsellors including the good Joe Heffernan who talks on your programme talks about the seven stages of grief in my case I didn't go through any of the stages of grief when my lifelong friend and employer died three years ago I went in to about four days of absolute wailing and crying and then all of a sudden The wailing and the crying stopped and I simply accepted that my dear, dear friend was gone. My faith then really helped me hugely because I truly believe I will meet with him again. And I was doing him no favours, wallowing in my loss as he was such a cheerful man. He would hate it to have seen me so unhappy. So for his sake, as much as my own, I copped on. And I faced up to it. Admittingly, I do have the odd down day. But then when that happens, I talk to his photograph and it helps get me back on track. Well done. You've got a really good positive attitude. There will be other people listening who are grieving at the moment who would love to be in the position that you are in now. And good to know that you had, had you had your faith as well. I think people who have a very deep faith, I'm not saying that they get over bereavements any, quick, any quicker, but it certainly does help. And you're right. Every Everybody grieves differently and it's a point that I always make if I'm messaging or texting or speaking to somebody who's had a recent bereavement. I'm always saying to people there's no right or wrong way to grieve. What might be right for me may not be right for you and I always say that to people and I think more than anything people just need to be kind to themselves and you're right Joe talks about that there are seven stages of grief and you can bounce from one stage into the next stage and then go back two steps again and it's a, it's a it's a difficult difficult thing grieving is for everybody. But good to know that you seem to be you seem to have your act together, which is fantastic. Long long may that continue. And thank you for your text to oh eight six two one zero three one zero three. And then on wildlife and people talking about birds and people are blaming things like hawks. And then we'd Willie. I think would a really good explanation, taking his advice from the BBC's Winter Watch program that we're losing so many of our small garden birds because of pesticides we're losing so many of our insects because of insecticides, then obviously if we lose insects, we're going to lose more birds because a lot of them feed on the insects and if they're not there, then obviously that's going to have a knock-on effect on the bird population. Marion says that she's a walker. She's out walking quite a lot and she's noticed over the last couple of years She's now seeing very little rabbits on the road that previously when she was out walking, there would always be at times of the year she'd spot a lot of rabbits. She also hasn't seen many pheasants around anymore. She's blaming buzzards, you know, those big birds, because she says in the area where she lives and where she does her walking, there's three or four buzzard families in that area. She is convinced that they are the ones are responsible. She feels buzzards buzzards are way worse than the hawk that was one other listener felt was responsible. But again, listening to what Willie had spoken about, I go back again to the point, even if there are a lot of buzzards or a lot of hawks in an area, they still couldn't do that much damage to see so many birds disappearing. I mean, one of our listeners reckons they, they used to have about 50 birds coming into their bird feeder and it's now down to between uh, 10 and 15 and that couldn't all be explained away by just having some hawks in the area. And Anne actually is also on about uh, buzzards. Anne says, we have several pairs of buzzards around. We also have lots of birds. In fact, I just saw a jay when I put out some seeds. I also have goldfinches around all the time. They, by the way, love peanuts. The buzzards kill small rabbits and And rats, which I've witnessed and only witnessed last week, but a buzzard will never take or kill a bird. They just go for the vermin. They kill the rats and the mice and they'll also kill rabbits. That is from Anne, who sounds like she is a bit of a woman in the know. And thank you for that, Anne. And Dan says, hi, uh, Patricia, on the issue of small birds. I actually have more small birds in my garden than ever. Before, I also have two pairs of kestrels and I also have some sparrowhawks who regularly visit the garden but I also have crows and in particular I have a number of grey crows who viciously defend my garden when the sparrowhawks or the kestrels come too close. Their reward? they get fed. It is all about balance. I don't have any rodents, despite my bird feeders in the garden, because some people worry about the bird feeders can attract rodents. And by the way, I also have plenty of rabbits. It's not the hawks that are the problem. It's us and how we look after our environment. That's in from Dan. Thank you for that, Dan, who's seeing more rabbits and more birds in the garden than ever before. Thank you for your uh, text. Let me see what else is coming in on uh, this. Uh, Ellen says, Patricia, just heard the listener inquiring about the birds and the rabbits. I don't know about hawks, but I also suspect it's the buzzards who are taking the poor rabbits. I'm very surprised. I was very surprised to see a buzzard. They are about in this area. I love my birds, which we feed every day. We have a robin who comes to the same place on the holly tree every morning for a prolonged uh, visit. And that's from Ellen. Yeah, I have Robin. And they're territorial, so it's the same Robin, isn't it, that comes back. I have Robin's, uh, one particular Robin, and he sits up on the, he or she, I don't know, sits up on the table every morning, kind of looking in at me. And I love that thing with with again when, you, when we just mentioned bereavements I love that thing that some people believe that a robin is a sign of a loved one that's passed away coming to check up on you and I love to kind of sit there and think that that's exactly who it is that it's a loved one who's passed uh, away and I also have a pair of doves that come into the garden and they have a, like a little thing around their, their neck and my mother-in-law who's a real big fan of birds and she feeds so many birds in her garden and is, is a fountain of knowledge when it comes to uh, wild birds. She was explaining to me that these two particular doves that come into the garden they're a pair and that they pair for life And it's wonderful to see them come into the garden and they're in the garden a lot. And my neighbours also have the bird feeders out. So between the two gardens, we seem to get a lot of uh, birds. So I think maybe Dan, who made the point, is down to what you're putting out to attract the birds into the garden. And thank you for that, uh, Ellen. Uh, Lots of rabbits here in the Macroom area, says uh, Kath, who's also unfortunately saying there's a lot of deer on the roadside. Be very careful of the deer on the roadside. They are so dangerous, says uh, Kat. And I don't know, is it—is it the rutting season? At the moment, they're particularly bad when the rutting season is underway. And Christine in Carragher Line says, buzzards really... Eat mainly road kill, I have lots of garden birds, which I feed, so I don't understand why people are saying that uh, there are no birds around. I'm seeing a lot of them, okay, that's just some of your thoughts coming in about birds and wildlife. Thank you for all of your commentary. When I was speaking with Father Thomas about the church of the Ascension Church Cross in Gloria and how the parishioners and people from outside the parish are chipping in to pay for the cross because as you said the insurance will cover the cost of removing the old cross but the fact that the cross is there 60 years the insurance company are saying sorry mate, wear and tear, we're not replacing that for you. So the the parishioners have set up this GoFundMe page. Somebody and I was waiting for this, and it did come in just after the interview with Father Father Thomas. Why can't Rome pay for the new cross at the top of the church? The Catholic Church is a most wealth is one of the most wealthy organizations in the world. Why should parishioners have to play uh, pay? Um, I would say uh, good luck with Rome coming in to help out with a cross on the top of a church in Gronerborough lovely idea if they would jump in and do it but in the meantime the parishioners are you know want to do it themselves and they are quite within their right uh, to do that 0818 103 103. Our lines are open. John Paul taking your calls. Gardening questions please for Peter Dowd I can see some coming in to us by text. You can keep those coming to 0862 103
0: 103. The C103 Cork Diary.
3: With Cork County Council delivering roads and housing, community and business supports all across the county. See corkcoco.ie.
2: Duke of Slana-Kilty are hosting their February lecture which will be via Zoom. It's happening tomorrow night, Thursday at 8 o'clock. All the information and the log-in details are available on the Duke of Slana-Kilty website or you can go to Duke of Facebook page. Also, tomorrow, Kildallery Community Development, they'll have their weekly lotto draw in the local community office tomorrow afternoon with a jackpot of €2,300. Euro. And ballin Community Development Association, they're welcoming back set dancing for their Kaylee on Friday night half past nine it'll be in the Marion Hall admission will be 10 euro and teas will be served and from Moy Tidy Towns are hosting a fundraising coffee morning that's on Saturday morning half ten until one and it's in the Wagon Wheel Tavern an Upton Track run in aid of the Down Syndrome Centre in Cork will be held this Saturday it starts from Bandon GAA Club three o'clock in the afternoon registration will open from 12 noon and if you'd like more information, you can check out their Facebook page, which is track Truck. Run
0: court today on C103
3: with Sean Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group for motor, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance. CMIG.ie.
2: We catch up with uh, Peter Dowdle answering your gardening questions. Let me catch up with some more of your comments that have been coming in uh, this morning on birds and rabbits. Colum in Buttervant was on to say there's a huge amount of rabbits where Colum lives in Buttervant, but what he's noticed is that when the local farmers are out spreading slurry then you won't see any rabbits around after that. He said rabbits love the grass and the clover type grass but once they start spreading the slurry the rabbits will be gone. He's been feeding birds in his garden since the 80s but he also agrees with Willie who was on earlier that he's noticed there's less and less bugs and flies and midges around and he said you'll particularly notice that on your cars you know on the headlights of your cars normally you'd be cleaning it off and there'd be loads of little insects and he said over the last number of years he's seen less and less of that which ties in with what Willie was talking about on the BBC Winter Watch and they say it's because of pesticides and insecticides we are just destroying our planet thank you for that Colum. Gareth in Bantry this is on bereavement Uh, for the person that's grieving there is the saying that uh, this too shall pass Uh, he Gareth in Bantry also agrees a group session is the right way to go and he knows that from experience it works For many, many uh, people. So hopefully, Nula's brother will be able to find a counseling session that runs locally. That will suit him. On the wearing of masks. No on, on no mask wearing. This is from A who says, I'm recovering from a very bad cold at the moment. It was a chest infection. My sinuses, really rotten old dose. I got tested but it wasn't COVID. I know I'll probably end up picking up COVID. Why? Because my boys are still in school. So if I'm this sick with the common cold, What happens if I get COVID on on top of it? Nephet I feel are out of order removing masks in public settings. Hospitals wait and see will be inundated with people. Use the KN95 that's the medical grade mask because they not only keep COVID out but they also stop you spreading COVID. I heard this this mentioned by a medic on the radio. The pandemic will thrive under the no mask regime unfortunately. Thanking you and that is from a and you can get those those medical problem those medical grade masks though and they are by far the best and I have heard many medics saying that they are by far the best but they're expensive and that's the problem for people who are st- will still be nervous about going out but for those that are nervous and those certainly who are in a vulnerable position health wise I have to agree the medical grade masks are certainly the way to go now my advice to our gentleman from uh, Kerry who is trying to get a passport Jay and I had said. Obviously he's not able to operate online and I was saying that either go to the post office to pick up the forms or go to the guard station to pick up the forms and then go back and do Passport Express at the post office. Jay says, Patricia, don't go to the barracks for the passport forms because they won't be accepted. They only accept the forms through Passport Express from the post office. I didn't realise that. OK, thank you for that, Jay. And then somebody else has updated the advice saying, Patricia, your query regarding the passport if it is for the first time, and I, I think it is by the tone of of the text. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought you had to fill in the forms. Have your photograph. Then, don't you have to go back into the Garda station to get them to sign the form in the presence of the Garda? Uh, and will they sign the back of the picture as well, if my memory serves me right? Then off to the post office to do your passport express along with your fee, says You're right, I missed out on the one bit in between. So, our gentleman in Kerry needs to pick up the forms from the post office, go home and fill it in, get his photograph taken, then go back to the Garda station and then go back to the, the uh, passport. To the post office and do passport express. As I say, it is it is. You see, on a first passport, you can't. If you're applying for a passport first time, you have to physically do it that way. You can't do it online. But the renewal definitely is easier if you are able to do it online but again I'm very conscious of I'm very conscious and aware that there are people who can't do everything online okay that is an update on some of your texts and uh, calls that have come into the programme today and our apologies if we didn't get around to all of them okay we're going to take a break and Peter Dowdell our resident gardener will join us 0818 103 103 John Paul taking the calls there or you can text our WhatsApp questions 0862 103, 103
0: Court today on C103.
3: With John Cusack Insurance's Kinsale, Now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie.
0: This
2: is the Court Today replay on C103. I'm Peter Dowdle, the Irish Gardener.com, uh, joining me on this Wednesday afternoon. Good afternoon to you, Peter. Good
9: afternoon Trish, how are you? I'm
2: very well thank you and we had a couple of a wild few days with all of the storms and actually we had some people earlier this morning talking about the storm damage and in particular talking about trees and I referenced you now after storms like that is the time to take a look at trees in the garden isn't it to make sure that, they, that while they mightn't have come down they could have got damaged
9: absolutely they could have been loosened and it really is and it's about every year at this time of the year trish we kind of we talk about this and and also the importance of of planting new trees now if you're planting new trees to be so careful of staking them properly because you know you you, you may look at what you're planting and it it might look at like no more than a twig in the ground but bear in mind in in 20 50 and 100 years time that'll be a substantial tree and and you don't want it to fall on your house, like we saw that picture last week. I don't know where it was in the country with the tree that fell on the house and the damage it did. Um, so yeah, so any trees, any established mature trees that you have in the garden, if there's any question over any of them, I would get a, 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 a reputable and, and recommended tree surgeon out to look at them and to see if there's any work. Because if you get work done now, yeah, okay, it might cost you a few bob, but it, it, it'll be much less than if the tree comes down on top of your car, or your house, or god forbid any human. So yeah, do, do take.
1: Take
9: action now, um, and also to say when you're planting new trees, do please. Stakes aren't there just for decoration, the stakes are there to anchor the, the tree in the soil properly.
2: Okay and then uh, we've so many questions in for you uh, today but so many all having the same problem and it is to do with uh, moss Uh, including Jim when is the right time to start treating moss, is it too early now and then Con in Bandon sums up major problem with moss in the lawn I've tried a number of treatments some will kill the moss but they just make the lawn look black so anything else that I can use and you could recommend would be welcomed and someone else is making the point that over this autumn and winter for some reason their garden is just full of moss and that person has a very large uh, garden what do you recommend for moss on lawns?
9: I you know. I put up a picture uh, Trish last week or over the weekend on Instagram on uh, my own page Irish Gardener of a close up of moss it was nearly like a macro you know the, the wonders of, of smartphones you couldn't you couldn't, there's no way you could make out the detail with the naked eye, but it, they're so beautiful. It, moss is so gorgeous the way it was holding the water. Now, I, I understand that talking to these callers, they're they're going to struggle to see the beauty in it. But so, yeah, it probably is more of a problem this year than in previous years because we haven't had any cold weather. It's been warm and damp throughout the winter. uh. And, of course, there's conditions that moss loves. And also, uh, with moss going black, when you put something on it and the moss turns black, it's kind of a counterproductive uh, approach. You see, you're you're using the, the the products that turn the moss black in the garden are all based on sulphate of iron. So sulphate of iron, which is in lawn sand and it's in a lot of these uh, triple action products, you know, lawn weed and weed feed and moss killers. The the the, the sulphate of iron, yes, it'll kill the moss, but it acidifies the soil. It lowers the pH of the soil, which in the longer term, it will create a pro- moss problem because moss loves an acidic soil. So really what you want to do like with everything to do with lawns to get it right it's what's below the soil not what's above the soil so you need to get the pH correct so it needs to be slightly alkaline so 7 is neutral so it wants to be above 7 between 7 and 8 ideally which is the ideal condition the ideal pH for good grass growth and moss won't tolerate it so in the first place that's that's what you need to constantly bear in mind and remember always the sulphate of iron will do the opposite no matter what the marketing on the bag will say so uh, also scarifying it, which is, we're coming now to the month of March, it's the perfect time to scarify it. So for anyone who doesn't know what that means or hasn't done it, it's like taking a mechanical rake to the lawn where you're you're physically ripping up the moss and you're, the thatch. Now the thatch is this buildup of of kind of dead and dying debris around the base of the grass, at to the top of the soil. So to scarify it ideally once a year is, is one of the best ways of, of keeping on top of moss and making sure ideally that the that the soil is well aerated you can do that by actually getting an aerator and doing it once a year uh, and, and then it constantly staying on top of the pH. So the lawn gold, which is the Irish product that I'm always recommending, is made up in Galway, will do just that. It will uh, maintain the correct pH and also give the right nutrient mix to the grass, making sure that the grass is strong, which of course is the best way to stop the moss from colonizing in the first place. But you do have to bear in mind always that, um, it's a, pardon the pun Trish, but it's a perennial problem, uh, we do have a warm and damp climate. Moss loves uh, warm and damp conditions and unworked soil. So in other words, if you're, you'll are you never see moss colonising in an area where the ground has been constantly raked or, or dug over. It's only on unworked soil. And of course, the soil under grass has never been worked as such. So it's an ideal conditions for, for moss to grow.
2: And it might explain why some listeners are saying it seems to be this year wor- worse than ever because we've had a relatively mild winter
9: extremely, relatively extremely mild winter, yeah. Um, I mean, you look at it—you've—you've you've, you've daffodils which should be in flower for Daffodil Day at the end of March. They're in full flower now yeah. in February. A lot of them. Yeah, it's been very, very mild. so Yeah, that is why the moss problem is worse.
2: Okay. Best of luck to everybody with their moss issue. Liz says I've got a Portuguese laurel that I treated for blight last year. It's still a bit shook looking. What can I do to bring it on? It was planted about six or seven years ago.
9: But if you treated it for blight, you probably used the copper sulfate. So um, now, coming into the spring, it, it, it probably is looking a bit shook because it, it hasn't done any, hasn't had a chance to do any growing during the winter. So now that it's coming into the spring, I'd expect you, you should it should begin to start looking better all on its own. But give it a feed, give it a good seaweed feed around the base of it, uh, either a liquid or a granular seaweed feed, and maybe a bit of bit of compost, bit of soil, uh, good soil to add to improve the texture all around it. Uh, and I, I'd be, I would say like the nature safe liquid seaweed, which is the, the Atlantic seaweed one, that's a good one to use because it, it's organic and that will drive on growth relatively quickly.
2: Kathy is in Kilworth. She has a red robin shrub. It's about three foot high, planted f- four or five years ago. Can I move it? Some are saying I can't and others are saying I can't. What does Peter advise?
9: Well, the textbook answer is, yes, you can. You can, of course, move it in that you can move any any existing shrub from one part of the garden to another, but it comes with an inherent risk. Now, if it's been in there five or six years, as she says, you know, the risk is substantial. Uh, and the other thing is we're really gone past the window of moving it. Um You'd normally say it's traditionally, Trish, if you remember, where they say within, once with an R in the year. But I wouldn't go quite that far. In that I would like wouldn't include March and April in in a time to be moving things. Um. So if you can get it done immediately, and again, it ties in with what we're just talking about because the plants want to be completely dormant, fast asleep when you're moving them, uh, and that that dormancy is is bought number bought on number one by lowering light levels during the winter months but also by lowering temperatures and as we said the temperatures haven't really dipped that low this year not for any extended period of time anyway so moving things this winter in particular is going to be more fraught with risk if you like because it's not cold enough so if we do get and I know they're forecasting minus two I think over the next few nights yeah
2: tonight in particular is going to be particularly bad yeah
9: Yeah, so like if we were to get a run of that, which on the other hand I hope we don't, (laughs) But, but from the garden, if you wanted to move something, you'd want a few days of those low temperatures, move it immediately. Uh, And have it or move it and have its new home ready for it immediately. But you might be honest. Be honest with you. You might be better off waiting till next winter.
2: Yeah. Okay. Eileen in Yall has blood red hydrangeas. Well, they were blood red, but in recent years they've started turning pink and even slightly different colours. What's the cause, and what can be done? Because she likes the blood red ones.
9: The I I'm I'm struggling on this one because normally when the 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 if you add, if you acidify the soil, in other words, you'll turn. It, you're more likely to turn it blue, but I think with those blood red ones, I I think I'm open to correction on this, note, rich. But from memory, I think if the blood red ones are are turning more of a, a wishy washy pink, I think I'm right in saying that that um by adding some iron to it, sulfate of iron will help to bring back that that really rich dark red. Um, I wouldn't add the aluminium sulphates. That's what's sold as a hydrangea colorant because that'll that will just make it more blue. So I think sulfate of iron or sequestered iron is what I would use in that case. Do use it. We'll know then it'll come end of summer, early autumn <laughs> whether I was right or not. But I I'm fairly sure that that's the best thing to put on it.
2: Okay, hi uh, Peter. I found a bag of tulips that I forgot to plant can I plant them now I've just found them in my shed
9: absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. plant away provided provided they're still firm and they're not gone softer or mushy plant away I mean you've nothing at all to lose they will come good they'll probably be a bit later uh, but they won't survive if you hold on to next autumn anyway
2: Sean wants to know is now the time to prune a climbing hydrangea and lavender
9: lavender yes but don't, don't prune it too hard lavender hates to be cut back too hard um, If you, lavender is one of these plants that needs to be regularly cut back, regularly trimmed uh, I suppose as opposed to being cut back because it, it does tend to get woody and leggy in this in this climate our soil and weather is too good for it uh, and, but to prevent it doing that, give it regular trimmings two or three times during the year between kind of flowering bursts if you like uh, if you leave it, get woody and then cut it back hard, it'll just turn up those and die in you I'm afraid um, with the climbing hydrangea no, I wouldn't cut that back, you rarely need to cut it back, so if, I suppose if it's a question of if he's asking uh, is it the time to cut it back because it's growing into somewhere where he doesn't want to, like a lot of climbers can? Well, then, yes, it doesn't really matter when you do it then because you you just need to keep it in check. But if you just want to prune it that it's growing a bit too far out from the wall or something like that, which would be unusual with the climbing hydrangea, uh, I would say no, because you're going to sacrifice the flowers for this year if you do that. Uh, I would do that directly after flowering would be the best time to do it.
2: Hi, this is from Theresa. When is the right time to plant potatoes and onion sets outdoors?
9: Well, you're coming into it now. It's still a bit early. Uh, I would say your potato set, your poda- seed potatoes outdoors would be next month. You traditionally have the first earlies in by Patrick's Day, which is obviously the 17th of March. Uh, and the main crops then will go in any time after that, right through April. Uh, onion sets, you could certainly have them in now, but if you haven't got them in yet, you've still got plenty of time. anytime time during March will be fine. Is
2: it okay to set a Prunus circanza? Kanzan, now, yeah. 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 Uh, and do I put compost around it when planting?
9: So it, it, if, is it OK to plant it now? Yes, it is OK to plant it now. And again, if it's a pot grown tree, so in other words, it, sorry, to, to to put it in layman's terms, Trish, you, you might you might struggle with the name, but it's actually the, the you know it very well. It's the pink cherry blossom, Prunus canzan. Um, you know, the the, the the cherry blossom that we'll all see in bloom during April and May, that's what we're talking about. So if it's a pot-grown specimen, yeah, you can plant it any time of the year. Uh, if it's a bare root, in other words, if it's been grown in a nursery and it's no pot, uh, you really want to get it in as soon as possible. Plenty, plenty of water over the next 12 months. As I said at the start, just make sure you stake it very, very well. Not a huge need for compost, but I would certainly dig the hole for the, for the plant. Uh, and what I would concentrate more on is is breaking up the pan underneath that hole to encourage those roots to get a good bit deeper. So kind of even with a, a, a large crowbar or something, just try and, try and break up the soil beneath the hole to encourage the roots to go down as opposed to sideways.
2: OK, Elizabeth says, please, could you ask Peter, how do I prepare the ground for wildflower seeds? At the moment, it's just rough grass.
9: Well, the best thing to do is to remove the rough rough grass. You have two ways of establishing a wildflower area in the first instance, Trish. First of all, you could do nothing and just let what's there. So just stop growing, stop cutting the grass if you've been cutting it and see what emerges. Now, if it's an area that hasn't been maintained or hasn't been, you know, mowed or anything, uh, and you just want to put in a new area of wildflowers, just remove any existing growth. Just go out there by hand and, and remove it. Um, any existing vegetation and you just make it's important that the wildflower seed then makes contact with just bare soil just fresh soil don't feed it don't don't put in any new good quality soil or compost or anything of like that it wants really nutrient poor soil or else the grass will just take over again so uh, that's really all there is to it remove the existing vegetation scrape it with a rake just to break up the tilt create a tilt uh, and then put on the, the the wildflower seed and concentrate on watering it uh, if it's if it's a, a soil that has had fertilizers or plants or anything on it over the last number of years you will see grass being a, 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 a bit of a problem as it establishes over the next couple of years and bear in mind with wildflowers two things number one it's too early to put on wildflower seed yet you're looking from mid-march on, uh, Mar- on until kind of mid-april that month and then again in september But the other thing to really remember, Trish, it's a slow project. You will see colour for most wildflower mixtures in year one as annuals come into bloom. But then in year two, it'll be different because you'll get the annuals and biennials and some of the earlier perennials. But then in year three and onwards, it'll be quite different again as the perennials come into bloom. So it is don't lose heart, I would say, if you're putting on wildflowers it is something that you're going to give, have to, to give a couple of years to before you see it at its best.
2: And then and you'll, you'll, you'll have the benefit of it then. Okay, and uh, lots of people wanted to cut back. Roses is now the right time to do it.
9: Get them done. End of February is always my my, my cut-off date. I, I aim to get them always done by the end of February. So do, get but even moving. if you don't get there before the end of February, do get them done at some point.
2: Okay, have a good week
9: and you thanks and for and we'll it.
2: talk to you next week thanks for that that is uh, Peter Dowdle theirishgardener.com that's where I leave you for today my thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing Nick Richards with you for the afternoon and we're back with you tomorrow morning at 10 until then I'm Patricia Messenger. or today good afternoon.
0: on
3: C103 with John Cusack Insurance's Sale. now part of McCarthy Insurance Group want great advice you know who to talk to cmig.ie
0: normally being a little extra can be a bit
5: much